start. Be Real is brought to you by Converse College Low Residency MFA. Their two-year program features biannual residencies that nurture writers of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and young adults, guiding them from first draft to publication. Converse has launched emerging writers like memoirist Sunel Barnes, novelist Sonia Condit, and award-winning poet Lisa Hayes Jackson. Visit www.converse.edu slash MFA for more information. Converse College Low Residency MFA. Your next book lives here. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network. We are a genre-hopping, movie-reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We're here to talk to you today about uh, what made us laugh or didn't uh, in movies in the year 2018. In this, in this very year-endy list retrospective time, Noah and I are centering in on a genre that had kind of a is it fair to say quiet year in 2018 comedies? Quiet and like a little goofy. Quiet and a little goofy. I think that's right. Um, in a year where Night School uh, had the biggest box office, it was a strange one. But an interesting one. A lot of smaller films uh, that kind of punched above their weight class and some comedies that maybe don't like jump out at you when you think of oh original comedies for adults that actually raked it in so we're gonna t- uh, as we do on every be real we're gonna zone in on three films each of them representing sort of a different branch of the movie comedy world no what are you talking about today so we're gonna start out with blockers if that's all right with you chance which yep. is our entry from sort of big studio comedy making mm-hmm and then we have Eighth Grade, which is this sort of indie darling with its, you know, sort of YouTube sensibility to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, it's Bo Burnham. So and he's I think I don't really know why he's famous, but isn't it YouTube? Right. Yeah. YouTube from like 10 years ago. Sure. Then, yeah. And then, of course, Netflix has set it up a Netflix film, uh, which is the streaming edition of is this where these broad comedies have gone? Yeah, so we're not necessarily saying that these are the best movies of the year, but we are going to use them as the portals into discussing like these areas uh, of comedy movies and where they're at. Because it's a certain type of movie is exploding on Netflix, um, a certain type of movie is struggling in the theater, and then a certain type of movie is trying its hardest and winning over critics um, but from studios like A24. So... Um, yeah, we'll we'll jump out of our conversation. And then at the end, you know, stick around. We are going to talk about our five favorite comedy performances of the year writ large. So if, there's a, if these aren't the movies you want to hear about, we'll be shouting some others out. Yeah, but before we get into the movies, Chance, I'd like to talk about the year that was yeah. uh, in 2018. I was just going through not only like the box office numbers, but just sort of clicking through who was in what. And it's so interesting to me that in a year with some pretty diverse distribution models, all of the comedies that were released were pretty much pretty safe 
bets other than maybe the ones that we're talking about today or at least two of them but you know you have like i broke them up into like be real-esque genre categories sure and i mean at least seven of these movies were the next installment of some larger franchise you have your like pitch perfect three came out this year uh my personal favorite johnny english strikes again uh, Super Troopers 2, Deadpool 2, Ant-Man versus the Wasp, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, Chances, Dark Horse for Best Picture, uh, and of course, Ocean's 8. Right. Like When we talked about this idea, we're like, so what were the comedies this year? I think it took us 12 hours to be like, oh, wait, the most successful comedy of the year was Deadpool 2, um, right. which is... And, and Night School, if you go by just by straight sort of broad comedy. Right, but that's what I'm saying, is that Night School made like $77 million and Deadpool 2 made like $300. Um, and people didn't go to it because they were like, oh, I want to see the next adult comedy. They went to it because of superheroes. But superheroes have just, in the same way Logan kind of subsumed the Western in 2017, here's Deadpool subsuming the adult self-aware comedy. It was also an interesting year, I would say, for these sort of like sad slash politically motivated sort of auteur director kind of comedies that like weren't funny they were just sort of depressing and that's well or like cutting and successfully insightful i mean it was a this is where the good movies on this list live in my opinion sure but like when you're talking about like i mean if you're talking the same conversation as like night school and black Klansmen, like it's sort of hard to you know have that be synonymous like with where comedy is well i wouldn't even put black clansman on the list honestly like it was it was marketed as a comedy but having having sat through it twice and like you know barely kept my eyes you know yeah is sorry to bother you is that would you call i didn't say that either is there a comedy that's hysterical um but it's super like you know cutting it's it's hysterical like brazil is hysterical sure yeah of course, you've got Isle of Dogs on it. It's amazing to me how easily Wes Anderson can make $75 million on a movie. Yeah. Like, that's insane that someone can so consistently do, like, a Japanese-themed claymation about a, an island where dogs live and then, like, a boy is trying to get his dog back. Yeah. And it's like, we'll make $75 million internationally on this $10 million movie. Hooray. Um, Let's talk about movies this year that were sort of led by, uh, in a very traditional way, by one movie star's cult of personality. Let's talk about Melissa McCarthy and Tiffany Haddish, shall we? Yeah, so you've got, I've been talking about Night School, but we, uh, Tiffany Haddish also had Nobody's Fool. She had a supporting role in Uncle Drew. Didn't you go nuts for Uncle Drew? I've actually seen Uncle Drew. I have not seen it. Oh, I thought you were like, because you're big into like the NBA guys. You're like the Space Jam sort of film viewer. Um, And then she was in this movie, The Oath, that Ike Barinholtz, who's uh, one of the parents from Blockers, who we'll talk about later. Not only he was in it, but he wrote it and directed it. But I never heard of that. None of these movies were that successful. None of them is especially successful. Well, Night School was the most successful comedy of the year. Compared to Girls Trip, though, so this is a oh, year in well, which Tiffany. Like a... This is a year in which Tiffany Haddish said yes to everything, appeared in four movies in one year, um, and none of them quite lived up. And my my feeling about this when we were looking at this was, um, 
None of them exactly capitalized on like what people loved about Tiffany Haddish. Maybe she's just like that incredible show stealing like third character. But maybe you should try giving her a movie where like she's the star. Like these Amy Schumer movies that are asking about like what it is to be a woman in her sort of like edgy problematic way. Why don't we just like make movies that are that focused on their star but with Tiffany Haddish to really like test her metal at the box office instead and not of not put her, her with like kevin hart or something yeah like or make her a wife or put her in a 30 million dollar tyler perry sure. movie yeah at least she's not melissa mccarthy though who had a real stinker of a year with life of the party which i had totally forgotten came out uh the happy time murders which is the jim henson approved parody yeah uh which is totally i mean not him but his like estate was like yeah melissa mccarthy if you want to like have our puppets shit and fuck like whatever yeah widely regarded as one of the worst films of the year Happy time yeah Murders. definitely made some bottom 10 lists that i read this week and there were also i mean like talking about happy time murders there's also like that sort of crazy idea that like we could still be living in a year where you would have a sherlock holmes parody movie come out with like mm-hmm. two of 10 years ago's biggest comedy people it's will ferrell and john c Riley. sure as like a, their follow-up to Step Brothers is a Sherlock Holmes p- p- parody, it's crazy. It comes out Christmas Day. We'll see how that does. Um, and then we'll talk about sort of like the more mainstream, gross-out like adult comedies when we get to blockers. But we review Tag on this show. Um, Game Night we reviewed at length. It's probably the best comedy of the year, right? Without a doubt. We were talking to uh, Rodrigo, our benefactor here, about it. And I think he made some good points that it was sort of like if you made Fincher's The Game, but it was like always a comedy, but like still also always the game. Yes. And it's an unbelievable feat. And there's some breakout performances. No spoilers to the end of the episode, but I think Chance and I are going to talk about at least one uh-huh. cast member from Game Night. But if you haven't seen it, where is it? HBO? It's somewhere. It's great. Yeah, it is. Um, and we'll talk about this more with Blockers. It really is much a different, far different approach than the standard studio comedy these yeah. days. Um, and then we've got uh, we got some for the olds, some for the olds and the rich and the white. Um, yeah. Which is like the Nancy Myers or Nancy Myers knockoffs. Um, we've right. got like, we had Book Club, which made it, which did a business. Um, we've got Juliet Naked, which did not. Um, and then what's second act? Second act is that Jennifer Lopez, her kid changes her Facebook page, so they like make her a CFO of like a really large corporation. But it's like a Can movie. Can you give me ninety minutes? Towards... I gotta go see this movie. Yeah, no, I'd I'd love to see it. It seems heartwarming. I love Jennifer Lopez because it's such a good sort of metaphor for her career, too. She, like, needs that, like, am I still a star kind of question. And we'll see how that movie does. We don't have SNL uh, churning out new talent like we did 10 years ago. Well, the only really entrees that they had this year were The Spy Who Dumped Me, which I saw, which was garbage. And uh, Kate McKinnon was in that. Yes, and Myla Kunis. Uh, and I Feel Pretty, which I watched today as my ding, ding, ding extra credit. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that now or later? Well, have you seen it, Chance? Nope. So the setup, as you probably read when it got absolutely destroyed on the internet for being like not very progressive, 
is that there's this woman who thinks the only thing in life that is important is being pretty. And so she goes to soul cycle and she like hits her head and she wakes up thinking that she's beautiful, like just drop dead beautiful. And then through a series of like misunderstandings with her friends and employer, she like that becomes like realized that she, Oh, I am, I'm right. And everyone can see it. And like, yada, yada. And there's a love story in there. It's very much like, has the same sort of feel as a uh, train wreck. Um, but it's hung to this like pretty flimsy conceit that she's has, has brain damage and thinks she's beautiful. It's sort of like reverse shallow Hal. And the people where... are crying out for that. Nobody was crying out for the spiritual sequel of Shallow Hal. So how do you... I can't remember if you said this, but this is an Amy Schumer movie, of course. Um, but what she learns in the end, though, is that like being pretty is pretty important. And mm-hmm. that she was just a shitty person waiting to be pretty so she could get away with her shitty behavior that, in fact, helped her like be better at her job. Is it symptomatic of the weird year we're having in comedy? It's just so it's like a movie that like men would have put out in the 90s being like, ha ha ha, ladies, like being pretty is like not everything. But it's like but we still like it. <laughs> but it's so this like couple wrote it and then Amy Schumer produced it. And then, yeah, someone not her directed it, which I thought was strange. And you, what you have is this 90s premise like attached to a person that's considered like one of our cutting edgiest as you said earlier comedians like why would why would such a thing happen it's so tone deaf so i feel like we're in this spot where we know that dramas starring movie stars have for the most part middle budget movies have gone away people are still taking shots with with comedians on 30 million dollar budgets and one person you know but people are not turning out like to see Amy Schumer's like liar, liar, like it's, right. it's not happening. Um, which I think is one of the star power has depleted as a resource in comedies too. So I think what we want to talk about today is ways in which people can get more creative. Uh, my thesis is going to be, and I think one of the reasons we picked this genre, even without really recognizing it is that it's that, well, there are three, movies that don't maybe hang so heavily on premises. And I think that is the dangerous place we're in in 2018 is that like the Hollywood selling elevator pitch premise for your average comedy, parenthetically romantic comedy is just like not as interesting as maybe just like putting talented people in a relatable premise, which train wreck is and which sort of blockers is so we can sort of get into the plot of that. Um, these parents try on prom night, these parents of high school students, high school seniors uh, attempt to, as the title would indicate, block some cock and keep their daughters from losing their virginities slash leaving them to go off to college. Right. Right. And we should say that the daughters, in fact, have a sex pack. They're all trying to lose their virginity. On I mean, night. incidentally, yeah, they all sort of are sitting at the lunchroom and they're like, we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to do the intercourse. Right. And you can sort of you figure out pretty quickly that like 
one of them is just trying to rebel in one way and one of them is a lesbian and the other um, just likes to experiment mm-hmm. and just is around people who experiment uh, most specifically well, the men that they're dating, which are all sort of funny in their own characters. This movie has levels, yes. which is interesting, but I think pretty quickly the movie gives up like a good comedy should in 2018 on this idea of we're going to stop our kids from having sex. And then it sort of shifts into a more resonant comedy about what it means to like, let your child go in this day and age of social yep. media and whatnot. I'm ready. You look beautiful. I used to hold that girl in the palm of my hand. Kayla's becoming a woman. You're going to have to deal with that. Thanks. I was looking for that. We gonna light it up like it's prom night. Dad, why are you here? You think I'm gonna miss the most important night of your young life? Isn't that graduation? Graduation is for losers. Tonight is the first night of our adult lives. I want to go to prom and lose my goddamn virginity. <laughs> prom night. It's kind of perfect. I'm in. Julie left her laptop open. You guys are snooping on our kids? All emojis have a secret meaning. Oh! Eggplants are dicks. This is some kind of a dick-related agreement. Maybe they're just saying, hey, you're okay with me. You're okay with me. I mean, maybe. What? Our girls are not thinking things through. I'm going to stop them. I'm in. So our parents are Leslie Mann, John Cena, and Ike Barinholtz. This movie was directed by Kay Cannon, who uh, basically spearheaded the entire Pitch Perfect uh, trilogy and wrote on 30 Rock and uh, New Girl. Um, so what kind of studio movie like is this? Do you see it as Apatow runoff a little bit? I think you probably pitched this movie as it's super bad meets bad moms. Mm-hmm. it's an adult led sort of gross out comedy for the people who were into the early Apatow movies in the mid two thousands and now maybe have kids, you know, and now, or those kids are older who like maybe don't appreciate, you know, Apatow. Cause now like that's boring because look how far comedy's come in these 10 years, 10, 15 years. But then it's also enough on the kids too. And there's enough reckless behavior that, you can appeal to the kids too. It, in a weird way, it is like a family movie. It's just a very specific kind of family movie. And that's parents attempting, basically if you're Josh Hamilton in eighth grade and you're looking for a movie to take your kid to, it's blockers. Cause it has both sides of this coin of parents not wanting to let go and kids like desperately trying to run away. <laughs> um, John Cena is the most successful like comedic performance in this movie. Um, Certainly. Which Leslie is Leslie Mann doesn't have a lot of like moves. No, as an actor, not particularly. She's just always that woman who's like trying to get into the nightclub because she still thinks of herself 10 years younger than she actually is. Yeah. And I think that the, that relationship is so indistinct compared to the one that John Cena has with his daughter Kayla played wonderfully by uh, Geraldine Geraldine Viswanthan Um, because they're like these Chicago you know dad who's built like a fucking Sherman tank uh, and the daughter he raised to be like a great student athlete who's like looking to rebel Um, but they're like both kind of like softies at heart and 
even though Kay Cannon directed the movie, it was written by Brian and Jim Cahoe. Um, and it just feels to me like the movie is more interested in what it means to be a dad in 2018 versus like mom is just mom's just protective to a fault. Like, what do you want from mom? The Leslie Mann Julie relationship did, just didn't feel as original or no. grounded. I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I thought the the relationship between Ike Barinholtz and his daughter was sort of fascinating too, because there was something, and I don't think this really spoils anything. It's a comedy, but there's a really interesting read on like, whereas we had like Josh Dumel, like totally blow it as a parent, like accepting a homosexual child um, in Love, Simon. Simon. Ike Barinholtz, like not only, appreciates and like respects his daughter's sexuality he like is upset that she like won't let it thrive and then is comforted and like sort of seen by her coming out to him Mm -hmm. like that is the act of love almost and that is the intimacy that they share and i don't think i've seen that sort of parent in movies before and at the same time though for me i feel like this movie hangs a lot on Ike Barinholtz because the thing that it withholds from you is like, why did this group of three parents not stay strong in the same way that the three daughters stayed strong in their friendship? But he's such a like goofy, insincere screen presence to me. And like in the moment in which his daughter Sam does come out to him, he's very funny. He's like, so you mean you didn't tell this to your mom? And you didn't tell it to Frank, played by Hannibal Burris. He's the stepdad that he hates. Um, I just think he's in an untenable position of trying to swing the like the passion of the movie um, when he's he's not up to it. I think John Cena probably could have done it, honestly. Interesting. I think he's an interesting foil to the two of their like goody goody kind of That's put true. upon parents who sacrificed everything, and here's this like sleazy guy. But like he's pretty relatable in terms of like the things that have vilified them, at least in their eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is part of the fun too, is that like also at the same time as, you know, these parents want to do their best and they want to like preach sex positivity, like where right. they can. They've there's gone that great to all the good rallies. There's that the great marches. scene in the parking lot where Ike Barinholtz literally says like, guys, it's 2018. But behind him, like two people are rocking a car. Like everyone wants to do the right thing, but everyone also knows that sex at 17 uh, can just be the worst. Let me ask you this. Did you think that the contrast between like what I think is a pretty interesting script in like a conversational way balanced out with what I thought were some pretty like unnecessary gross out moments, like the butt chugging and then, like, the car flipping over was really, like, unnecessary to me. Like, I don't know where I land on this script. Is it, mm-hmm. like, pitch perfect or is it, like, a little too much? I think that this is a... I like this movie. I think this movie is incredibly symptomatic of, like, what studio comedies believe they have to be in this decade. And by that, I mean improv is the driving force like we can say there's a script here but there are actually moments in the movie where you can feel the edit where they drop off a lens leslie man line she's like what you don't understand is audio cut like i do in the podcast it's like that level of amateurish so they could get into people improving in the next line like these are movies 
driven by banter. I mean, Baron Holtz is an improviser. Leslie Mann is Judd Apatow's wife. Uh, John Cena certainly has the chops. And when that's funny, that's funny. Um, but it always ends up feeling a little shaggy, a little imprecise. And like the movie feels the need to balance it out with spectacle. The things like the car flipping are in some ways, isn't it true? Like pick any big budget comedy and there's going to be like an insane like action set piece that's right. just kind of where we well, are i think that's what is so brilliant about game night is that it brings to the table the set of stakes that would have a car flipping over makes sense yes you know maybe not butt chugging but at least you know there's a reason if people die it's not just as like a goof right you know, it's sustained because, oh, they don't know what they're in for, which is the trick of that movie. And I think robs this movie of, you know, there could have been something, another plot layer that yeah. would have relieved this sort of lazy writing of like, oh, there's two two 18-year-old douchebags who like won't let you into their lake house. So they're going to prove their strength by putting a beer bong up their butt and then yeah. like somehow John Cena like opens up the cavern inside him and takes a full beer. <laughs> like, I don't get that part. Um, Yeah. I like that you brought up game night too, because I think that that is a movie that has a similar budget to this one. It made a similar amount of money as this one, but is a lot of people's favorite movie of the year because just how unlikely it seems in this universe of studio comedies it's so written even the visual choices in game night are so precise where they like zoom in on the neighborhoods and they look like game boards i was i was watching clips today the soundtrack of game night is sort of this like very interesting ambient tension building uh, again finchurian thing versus like what's the soundtrack of blockers it's just like a few hip-hop drops and like dun 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 you know like it's just like, you know, Hollywood stock, public domain mischief music. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, yeah, it's these movies are I like them. But at the end of the day, I don't know why we've accepted laziness on the one hand and then prescriptive bonding as the place that all studio comedies have to end. Yeah, I mean, it's so like Shakespearean, like dramas end with death and like sort of comedies end with weddings or like going off. Exactly. I mean, in this case, yes. That's, comedies end with here, weddings is. Yeah. Here it's going off to college and being like to come back when you're done with your life changing road trip. Right. It's like, and then we call back to an earlier, I would say pretty funny moment where they're like texting together. I thought that was a pretty good scene to show, sort of show the generation gap of like, yes. what's the eggplant? Is the eggplant a penis? Right. Um, you know, and, and then like, like Baronholtz is the one who's just like they're they're doing a sex pact. But other than that, you have written down here in our Google Doc um, that you wish. Do you wish that John Cena would have his own movie? I feel like that's a recipe for disaster. But do you, you explain why? This is what I'm th- was thinking about. How is it possible that John Cena and The Rock have not made a movie together? They are both so unbelievably charming and both demonstrate what I'm sure actual wrestling fans have always known that the sort of like performative uh, gusto and fake machismo that like makes you a wrestling icon is so fucking funny to subvert uh, on screen. I think that those and those two are both. I don't actually know if they like each other. Maybe there's some wrestling thing where they like hate, have a rivalry and hate each other, but like give John Cena all of like the daddy's home Wahlberg roles. But he also like stole some scenes in Trainwreck. 
Uh, oh, certainly. He's There's got that chops. sex scene. I think that, that, I mean, that was another problem with uh, I Feel Pretty is it just didn't have the supporting cast or it didn't let the supporting cast do anything. Like it had such talented performers with like Busy Phillips playing like a wounded Jessica Beale character. Like, what are you doing? A.D. Bryan doesn't have any jokes. Like, be real. Be right. real. And on that note, on that note, as the name of this show has been uh, dropped as a chastising command, we should tell you how we review movies on this, the podcast, Be Real. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I'm going to give Blockers... I'm going to give it a nice good good. I think it is a... That's your truth? That's my truth. It is a flawed movie um, that like a lot of sort of ambitious premise comedies like dies somewhere around act two and a half because you're just like you you hit that point in these movies where they are so big and gross and loud that they forget that writing is just as important in the 60th minute as it was in the 15th you know it has that syndrome that it's suffering from uh but i think it is creative and the kids by the way to me actually feel like real kids um I yes. like it. I'm going to give it a good good. I think it is a good good. I agree with you that the script is a little undercooked. Um, and there are some gross out moments that could have been more meaningful where like a young, like an 18 year old, like makes John Cena feel emasculated. Could have been much 
bigger of a laugh for like a whole lot less gross. Sure, sure. But I think when it makes that pivot into, oh, it's not just a proud prom night. It's not just about losing your virginity. It's about my role as your parent going forward. It resonated with me um, being not a parent. Uh, so I give it a good good. All right, cool. It's no game night. That's for sure. Oh, it's certainly no game night, but they're both on HBO, and that's like four <laughs> hours of content, and that's what we were looking for in this crazy mixed-up world. So now, why don't we move into sort of like the the sleeper hit, the, the human interest indie comedy that uh, came out over the summer and ended up on a lot of people's uh, year-end lists. Eighth Grade, starring the newcomer Elsie Fisher. Uh, I should. She's been a child actor in, in some things, like she was in the Despicable what Me movies. What was she in? Movies. Um, Which ones? Despicable Me. Oh, as a like as a, a voice. Yes, and as you said earlier, yeah, directed by Bo Burnham of stand-up and musical comedy. Sort of his a tall Dimitri Martin, if you will, has made a very well observed uh, movie about what it is like to be fourteen, despite the fact that he is our age. So this movie really hangs on you liking Elsie Fisher and like that balance that exists between like watching a young person be like precocious and then just being like so embarrassing that it's like hard to look at. That's the tension, I would say, of this motion picture. That's an interesting way to put it. I don't, I didn't really think that much about whether I liked her. It was much more about whether I felt for her. Oh, sure. Like you ultimately like become sympathetic, but this movie, like the big, it doesn't have like a butt chugging scene. Like what it's (laughs) hanging on is like how long she can hold a conversation with another human without saying something super weird. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Um, and this is not really a premise movie. This is just about an eighth grader and her single dad, played by Josh Hamilton. Uh, he's so sad. Trying to get through the last week of, week, her, yeah. of her eighth grade year. Yeah, it's a slice of life movie. It weighs in around 90 minutes. And I think that despite its slim stature is probably the best movie that exists about Generation Z. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. So, the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard, and it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever, but I'm not quiet. Most quiet, Kayla Day. I don't talk a lot at school, but if people talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm like, really funny and cool and talkative. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like, so cool. What? It's debatable, I think, whether this is like a well-written or even like a very written movie, but it's a really thoughtfully constructed one, like visually. um, Interesting. I got the sense that this was like very written. Oh yeah? Tell me about it. I thought there were some pretty interesting scenes and like bigger climactic scenes where the power dynamic between like parent and daughter or like high school junior and eighth and matriculating eighth grader uh, and like the 
the way they phrase certain things and they use sort of intimidation against each other was sort of fascinating. Like, yeah. oh, you like, dad, don't make me do that. It's not cool. You know, it's like, right. oh, I didn't want you to be embarrassed later. And these like sort of weird sympathies that aren't, that are, or they're dressed up as sympathies, but they're really just sort of these interesting power dynamics that exist between kids just trying to figure out like what the fuck is going on. I think that's right. And let me rephrase. I guess what I imagine is that the, if Bo Burnham gave notes to his actors, he gave it to him on like, oh, no, no, when you deliver this line, do not look at her. As opposed to saying like, oh, actually the line is, uh, there's it's an is, not an are. Are you supposed to say spectacular, not awesome? I get the sense that the kids are speaking in their very limited, very lifelike vocabularies. But like oh, the sure. details of how they're communicating are like, oh shit, Kayla's about to like climactically tell off this girl and she's not going to look her in the eye the whole time because she can't. Like that's, it's brutal, but also like right. very detailed in a directorial sense. I thought this movie was also a pretty interesting portrayal of the sort of online social media network life being just an extension of one's real life and sort of a, but also being a, not just a a reflection, but also sort of a refraction of great. Like, like there's something interesting about the fact that she's so outward in making these videos, but then no one watches them. Right. So like, what is the, purpose it is to like i guess vent some of this energy she wishes she had to use on people and then once she does have those people or just knows how to maybe get those people that's when she ultimately like is done with the safety blanket of these goofy videos she makes gucci right the movie uses music and sound incredibly well. Oh, you yeah. get her kind of like swirling through like the rabbit hole that is Instagram at the table with Josh Hamilton, like one headphone in, one headphone out. And he's just like saying something boring, like, uh, like, sweetie, tell me about your day. And it'll go from this sort of like ecstatic, psychedelic, like uh, Snapchat filter to like, dad, what is it you want at our <laughs> like fake wood table in our poorly lit house? Um, right. It's really the, good. The, the reality that the father has given her is not nearly as good as the one she's able to create for herself in this little world yeah. that she's made. Like or she, she doesn't gets, see she's it the as... star. Right. But I mean, I think the movie does a very good job in giving us, you know, everyone's seen that douchey like teen or preteen who like won't get off their fucking phone. Yeah. But you like get why with this movie. Right. Because like if the other option is to be like keyed into my dad who like doesn't get it and is like kind of a creep and like you're right with our, you know, poorly designed overstuffed house. Like why would you want to look at that either? Like what's the purpose of exchanging small talk when I have this like vast universe of content in front of me? I want to talk about Josh Hamilton more in a second, but back to the music for one second. That the sail away Enya music cue when so she's good. just Friday night, like that's that's brilliant uh, to have such sort of like an anachronistic sounding song. Um, Certainly, yeah. This, but also like the way that like you know bass drops happen in this movie are almost like hormonal, right? Um, like Bo Burnham oh, yeah. has like the comedy sense but also like the empathy sense to be like you know what for a second i'm gonna like pretty innocently sexualize this fucking asshole of like a 12 year old boy because <laughs> he's got these beautiful eyes and it's like then you've got that kind of like rickety bass drop and it's all just like these 
you like overreactive scores that tell you what's going on inside her. It's great. Yes, I, I totally agree. And like, because she doesn't give you a lot to go on. Like her personality is so unformed that it's almost difficult without the music and the sound cues to understand like what the hell is happening here with this person. And I think the music is such a clever way to both show her world and explain her world. It's a it's a whole movie about like what is inside and what is out when you are 14 years old and like what can you manifest from that good part of yourself inside that's so unremarkable outside. And the thing is that like the music replaces having to ask Elsie Fisher to do things that would compromise the realism of this performance. If this was if this was a 14-year-old Emma Watson, um Nobody would care about this movie because it would just be like a vehicle for someone who's going to be beautiful and famous at 19. Um, Elsie Fisher is acting really, really well, but also she's just very credibly acting like a 14-year-old. Yeah, this is just a very credible, awkward person. It's not... I don't know that her performance is that, like, great. I think she's just maybe filmed well. But I don't know. Who knows? It's hard to know if you don't know her as a performer, right? I guess, yeah. If you watch her, you're just like... Maybe that's that's the brilliance of it, is that I don't see the seams enough to know that she even is acting. Right. Yeah, that could well be. So let's talk about your guy, uh, Josh Hamilton. We're we're 25 years past Grover from Kicking and Screaming here. But yeah, he is, and I think well cast too, as like somebody from a totally different generation when like going out and doing things was like more important in expression. So he like doesn't understand when and why to do things to connect to his daughter. Most notably like when she, he's so desperate for her to make a friend, but then when she does make a friend, he like can't let go and he like needs to be in the same place with her because that's important to him. Right. It's definitely a performance that is on the same level as hers in a way that it's, I mean, maybe it's just the like intentionally in like unspecific script, as you mentioned, or if it's, you know, maybe they did a bit of improving to just sort of get it. But like, they're both buying in in a way that everyone's sort of, at least all the main people we see have these, this moment of being so like embarrassingly candid. Yeah that it's hard to if if the actors had not bought in it would have been so blatantly obvious as to be like you know like emma watson in the bling ring or something it's like do you know what a teenager is you know this is like i never doubted that these were real eighth graders especially that little kid gabe who like yes doesn't know what to do with his hands it's so good that was so totally me i think in the eighth grade just like how are you? Maybe not as OCD with all the packets of condiments, but not knowing what to do with one's hands and like, enjoy. Do you enjoy your chicken? You know, whatever. Oh, do you want to see this? No, no, no. It's so stupid. But like, maybe, maybe do you actually want to see it? <laughs> right, exactly. Was this movie funny to you or did you cringe more than you laughed? I have to say with this one, you know, the especially with our rating system, Comedy to me means that it like is so highly watchable and so much easier to watch than say like a horror movie or even like a a serious drama that if a comedy lands, it should lend itself to like, yes, that movie's funny. We should watch that again. Mm -hmm. With this one, I think it's funny in like 
its deep like literary irony in like many moments and like showing you know that sometimes our worst fears are true like it was surprising but also not surprising to me that this movie had like a moment of near sexual violence Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i just don't know that one can make a movie like that anymore in 2018 about like this kind of person without addressing that and so that's fair but like how many of your favorite comedies have a moment of like near sexual violence animal house you know animal house anything from the 70s (laughs) But well, I know I know for, that's not what you for, meant for laughs. Like this is not played for I laughs. Know what you it's mean. played for the opposite. So it's hard to even understand this movie. You're saying it's too for real. For me at least. It's too real to be comedy. It's comedy the way like American Beauty is comedy. Hmm. Hmm. But but I think Gabe coming in at the end yielded some laughs at least for me and my roommates. Sure. So what do you want to rate it? I think this is a quintessential good bad. Mm-hmm. I think it's a well-made movie that really captures a certain zeitgeist and really sort of gave me some perspective, even on people like my brother's age, who's uh, 16, going on 17, like why they're so glued to their phones and like what they're, how they're, why they're so good at like expressing themselves, but so terrible at communicating and shit like that. I would say I might actually encourage you to watch it again. I found it more watchable than I thought I would the second time because, and this is like a dumb point, but it's very true for the second good bad is if you know, she's going to be okay. And you can just look at her to like an adult and say like, this is, this is the experience that will ultimately just be something in your rearview mirror. It's a lot easier. The first time it's impossible to reach that point because you're you're terrified of like what's going to well, yeah, happen. Because it's so realistic, you wonder is something horrible going to happen to this young girl? Right. right. And that keeps it like is something going to happen to this horror? Like I never thought for a moment during blockers that they were going to allow one of the main like teenage characters to like become the victim of assault. Right. Right. Or if they did, like it would be very brief and then like he would get his comeuppance immediately. Right. Yeah. John Cena would throw him to Mars. Um, yeah. The guy who like wouldn't even have sex with her got thrown through a table. That's right. Uh, so I'm going to give it a, a good, good, but I, I totally see where you're coming from. I, I don't know if I would have watched this movie again this year if we hadn't chosen it for the podcast. Um, yeah. So let us leave uh, the theatrical world of $70 million movies and of surprising $13 million movies and, uh, and go to Netflix. Let's go to the couch where, uh, where most laughs happen these days. But right before that, let's hear a word from our sponsors and we'll come back and talk about Netflix to set it up. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Should we return my blue jacket? Yes. And after a very intense conversation with their saleswoman that ended with both of us in tears, I got you a full refund. I want it back. Absolutely. This computer isn't taking my password. Ah! Oh, no, do that. Ah! Ah! 
my laptop. Well, bring me my laptop. Wake me up at midnight, but don't startle me. Play a lullaby or something that just slowly increase the volume. What are you still doing here? I'm always the last one here. Nah, I'm always the last one here. The two of them are always in this office. Let's just lock them in a room together so they can have sex with each other. When they're boning, we're free. So... Netflix's 2018 film offerings. Uh, A lot of people have talked recently about how they've dipped a toe into the prestige pool with films like Roma and uh, Buster Scruggs. And uh, I didn't care for that Buster Scruggs, let me tell you. You're such a fool. Um, All your points tonight have been pan shots. Uh, Pan shot! But another thing they attempted to do was reinvigorate the romantic comedy with movies like Kissing Booth, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and the one we're going to talk about right now. Set it up. Don't forget Bird Box. Is that a rom-com? Don't forget uh, The Experiment. <laughs> Is that the Robert Redford, Jason Siegel one? Yeah, I think it's from like two years ago, too. So it's- we talked about To All the Boys I've Loved Before in the fall, and I'm wondering how many of those points will relate to set it up uh but set it up is it came out in june uh and led to like a week on twitter where people were like yeah you know what set it up was kind of like the tone of a lot of tweets. that was the internet's tone that week you're quite right uh-huh uh directed by claire scanlon who's worked on a lot of sitcoms i think this was her first movie she's uh directed episodes of the office the good place fresh off the boat all very bright shiny broad sitcoms um, and written by Katie Silverman, who this is also her first movie. And it kind of has that first movie zeal to it in a form that is like very old. Uh, like sure. this this kind of rom-com. Um, can I out you at the top as liking this movie a lot? Oh, I do like this movie a lot. Why? Why? Okay, well, I, first off, I liked that you talked about that these are just like ancient premise movies. Yeah. But you know what you need with an ancient premise movie is two young actors with ancient sounding names, uh, Zoe Dutch <laughs> and Glenn Powell. Deutsch. Is that how it's said? That's right. What, did you look up an interview? You're I not sure the best with names. I sure I'm not going to believe. I sure did look up her being introduced on talk shows a couple times. I have I have a crush on her. Yeah, you should know how to say her name if you... Uh, I think that that's one of the reasons I like this movie, if I'm being candid. Well, sure. But I also think Glenn Powell, who charmed the pants off me in Everybody Wants Some, now has graduated from the University of uh, Texas at Austin, and 20 years have gone by, twenty almost 30 years have gone by, and now he's an assistant at a hedge fund or whatever. You know that your girl Zoe Deutsch was in Everybody Wants Some as well, right? That's right. But it wasn't them. It was them and that other guy. That's right. Blake Jenner. Um, so, Blake Jenner. Yeah. So the premise of this movie is uh, there are these two overworked young folks in New York, one the assistant to a hedge fund manager played by uh, Tate Diggs, and the other the assistant to, uh, you know, uh, Asian-American woman Bill Simmons, um, who... They're they're both incredibly overworked, and these bosses of theirs have no like personal life, and so they're just there till all hours of the night feeding them. Uh, you know, they would be changing their diapers if the bosses weren't self sufficient enough to go to the bathroom. Um, and the premise here is very simple, which is if they can hook these two up to spend some romantic time together, they might have a night off. They might have a few hours off. Um, so that's the that's the thing. Um, 
When I say it's old fashioned, I don't mean that it's like retrograde. I don't mean anything bad by it, but like this is a very traditional rom-com in the sense of uh, references to previous rom-coms um, to things like, uh, why we have to Cyrano these two or like um, Romeo and Juliet. And they actually reference shit. Where is that? Oh, they reference parent trap, um, which is a, hall- but that would have been a movie from their childhood though. I know, but that's a hallmark of like the American capital R capital C rom-com is they love to reference previous generations of, of rom-coms. Oh, so you're saying in construction, in yes. narrative construction, this is a very old-fashioned romantic comedy. Well, I would argue that most of the genres I named at the top are pretty easily constructed things, too. And what you do with a movie like this with such constraints is no, I'm feed talking- in some interesting topical and social commentary, such as... What have we done to the creative class in the millennial generation and how do we undervalue that as compared to the booming, sometimes unrealistic, sometimes violent tendencies of the generation that's currently in power? This movie sort of presupposes that it's Gen X Mm -hmm. uh, with little nods at it being the baby boomers. But I think that this one, the way that, you know, you sort of saw the book culture changing and like the way we do commerce changing in um you've got mail yeah this one's also very sort of prescient and has its eyes open towards the idea of in this day and age like it's either you've got a gig economy job or you have like some crazy underpaid cool but like awful job as an assistant to somebody cool sure sure i mean that this movie actually has like the atmosphere of like Nancy Myers movies. I mean, like the money was oh, spent sure. on the soundtrack. We are sweeping. We're sweeping the New York City skyline. You like these movie. Be- you like this movie. If I can be so bold, because these people are going to be Nancy Myers characters in ten years. The biggest disappointment of this film was that we didn't get to see someone's apartment remodeled. Right. <laughs> they even go to a fucking Yankees game. Like yes, and they have Didi Gregorius doing his little stretch thing. Mm-hmm. It was great. That's things that I do though. Chance, I like to go to Yankees games, and like this is this felt also like pretty genuine to that like Manhattan experience. Like some other movies, like remember that movie we watched? We were really hungover, uh, like run all night. Yeah, that movie like had never been to New York. No. Like this movie, like it was, oh, you, yes, you have to get on the four train to like get back from Yankee stadium. And like, you need to do X, Y, and Z to sort of, to travel around and like, you know, some things are whatever. It felt very, felt very genuine to me. Mm-hmm. Not an emotional resonance, of course, but like certainly in its geography. Sure. Sure. And Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch are unquestionably very charming, especially her. If this was a traditional rom-com you would have her like be a little bit like stuck up about this job she has. And the movie has the good sense to let Zoe Deutsch be very winning to let her joie de vivre kind of carry the day. She's got the white kids. She cries at sports. She has this ecstatic body language. She does this thing that I love where when she goes into the office to tell Lucy Lou something, she brings something to her desk and then instinctively takes six steps back because that's just the power dynamic between them where she needs to be in the middle of the room. Like if she's asked to tap dance, she'll do it. Um, She's a very intuitive and joyful performer. She's great. 
Like, that's maybe what I liked about it, is it was devoid of cynicism, even in the face of a deeply cynical situation. That's true. You know, and it wasn't too mean about anything, which was nice. The thing I think was maybe problematic about it is I don't understand why you would sort of cast two heterosexual white people in the leads and you would make the bosses people of color. Because I think if you would actually want to do a somewhat interesting look about how capitalism stratifies like certain class systems that would be a more interesting that was nowhere near this movie's mind though no i understand that but like why be as ambitious as to say like oh like working these crazy new york assistant jobs is really difficult and then not making the boring white people the bosses like use this as an interesting vehicle for like some young actors of color sure like not zoe deutsch and glenn powell i know what you're saying but i think you're i think you're verging on territory that doesn't make sense to me because if we start to really invest in like what is this movie saying about like this class of people and sort of like the generational anxiety that is inappropriately passed down then then don't we have to consider like how fake everyone is like the the two bosses like don't remotely behave like real people like hr should be called ten thousand times these two assistants should immediately quit you don't have the reality pressing in on them of why they can't quit and so taking it too seriously on the one hand begets all these questions the movie's not prepared to answer See, on the I other i don't think that you've held that kind of position though so you like don't understand how like real that is and like for a contingent of like poor New York people watching Netflix, like it does resonate in a way that like got the internet to say like, yeah, this does make sense for a week. Cause those internet people I've all like had jobs like that where it didn't, of course they like didn't need the money. But buddy, the movie needs to show that you can't just say they made this movie for me and that's why it's good. That's nonsense. But who do you think this movie's geared to then? Like, who's the audience? If not the current generation of people looking for significant others who are right now the people who feel shitty about being assistants people at like people who like rom-coms anywhere in the world. The movie needs to you can't just say oh they didn't they didn't explore that part or they didn't. But I would argue that the romantic comedy as a genre is like intrinsically linked to urban life. Mhm. You know, when Harry met Sally, I mean look at whatever. Sure. You know, you've got mail. These are all New York set movies. There is something about the go-getter person who, for whom failure is so untenable that, of course, they, like, would see this job to the end. Glenn Powell even has a speech about saying, like, it's not about, like, the job satisfaction. It's about getting to the, like, the thing you can make the most money doing. And, of course, that's, like, the moral of the movie is, like, that's not true. But it also isn't. It's using, it's blurring this personal and professional space into a way that, like, you can use to go up to the next class system of creative types. And I think that resonates with maybe at least the people reviewing Netflix movies. Yeah, I think this movie is a pretty easy bad good. I think it's enjoyable. Um, I think that it's, like... It's cute and superfluous. It also, to me, at both times I've watched it, it's felt long. Um, I think that's, I think, and I can tell you exactly why. Get out of here. I can tell you exactly why that is. It's because 
Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell do not look at each other with a romantic notion until 60 minutes into the film. Every, both times I've watched this movie, it's... Because they're not, they're just means to an end for the other one. That's how these movies go, man. But that can what happen so much What I like about so when Harry met Sally is like, he should have, she should have fallen for his lines at the diner in the opening scene, and then it would have been a 10 minute movie. I'm Chance, I'm dead inside. This movie could easily be 90 minutes. I don't know why it's almost two hours. Um... I like the Yankees part where you get to see D.D. Gregorius do his little like stretch thing in so the batter's box. So you've already said. Only um, five months till baseball. The soundtrack is great. Uh, it is good. The leads are great. It's a bad good. I, for all my bluster, I'm going to totally agree with what? you. <laughs> this is definitely a bad good. No, I mean, I'd like to poke a little fun at you, but ultimately, of course, I agree that it's not like a great movie. Uh-huh. It's written on stereotypes and cliches, but it was fun. But it sure is it's available to watch. But it sure is streaming. <laughs> uh, let's. I watched The Christmas Prince. <laughs> what do you want What's from me? What's The Christmas Prince? It's the one with Vanessa Hudgens where she goes to this like fake British, but like non-British country somewhere in Europe that she looks exactly like the princess who's oh about to get married God. and she like <laughs> decorates a cake and so they like switch lives it's very like it's like parent trap but in like a weird like post brexit world yeah that is <laughs> i'm sure that's more credit than anyone's gonna give it anytime in the future compared to that set it up as the godfather sure um but let's take an industrial look for a second if this movie had gone into theaters, nobody would have gone to see it. It would not have been successful. In some sense, maybe it is a good thing. I probably would have seen it. Yeah, but like, come on, it would have. You don't count. <laughs> You're right. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's if the if Hollywood is going to behave this certain way in in weeding out the low and the middle or mostly the middle, like the low will always kind of scrap its way to something um, low budget. I mean, maybe it's fine that this, that this movie lives here. This would not have been a successful. For me, this is one of the reasons that it's like, okay, Netflix, like maybe every once in a while you do an interesting original thing. Yes. I would put it in that category of, huh? That's what I'm spending the extra $3 of my Netflix account to finance. Yeah, it at least feels like they spent a couple months making this movie and not like Netflix. An afternoon, like uh, yeah. <laughs> to all the girls I've loved or to all the boys I've loved before. Right. So we're talking about rom-coms though. Let's talk about a rom-com that did hit theaters and raked it in this year. That was Crazy Rich Asians, which we've talked about. Where do you see Absolutely. CRA kind of fitting into this uh, hodgepodge? Well, we talked about it here on the show, and I had talked about it with uh, editor and writer Vivian Lee, who had some great points about it. But I think this one's such an interesting example of like subverting everything that we're expecting from a movie like a Set It Up uh, or a Blockers, and then just like unapologetically putting it in a context that like freshens it up in a way that you know, maybe I was hungrier for in the set it up conversation, even in the blockers conversation. So how do you think CRA is subversive? Because I think of it as blowing out and giving us interesting faces of the same old thing. 
I mean, I think just in the casting and setting alone, sure, like sure. not having like a ultimately like a white family taking us to, you know, the Tony Bennett in the New York skyline. Right. Yeah, just because it's someone going from New Jersey to New York, well, now it's like a totally different country with a whole set of expectations that we just sort of have to figure out on the fly. And that's what like makes it interesting. That being said, it's like an incredibly vapid romantic comedy. Sure. With the same problems. I mean, we talked about them then uh, as some of them here uh, in, in Set It Up. Yeah. It's also a movie that in addition to breaking ground with the casting, which I agree freshened it up and made it great, um, is a very 2018 Hollywood movie. Spectacle is the name of the game here. We are going to throw as many people, as much money, and as many bright, shiny, noisy things as it takes to get you into the theater. And in the case of Crazy Rich Asians, a lot, a lot of people went. Okay, so before we get out of here, uh, let's give ourselves an opportunity to talk more about comedies and comedy personas that we really liked in 2018. We each have a list of our five favorite comedy performances of the year. Um, Are yours ranked, buddy? I think uh, coming in number five for me is going to have to be Lucy Liu with Set It Up. I saw her do a Sunday morning profile, uh, like right around with the time this movie came out. And she's just such a fascinating person. And I think bringing her sort of like strong, very like feminine kind of ideals to this particular character and showing a successful woman like in 2018 who is like not burdened. Like there's no moment where she's just like, oh, like I need a guy. Like the guy thing is just sort of convenient for her and like checks off a box Mm -hmm. but ultimately her plans have so much agency that it's like hard not to respect that and then like looking at lucy Liu as like a single mom and like a sort of interesting artist in her own right like i think there's a lot of overlap between these two characters and it's just nice for me that like that exists are you trying to starve me no my bones are eating themselves to stay alive order me that thing that i like from that place with the gay waiter the closeted one so we are doing a second dinner. Make sure that this is at 10,000 steps before Yavuz gets here tomorrow. I do not want him to think that I was not working out between sessions. Nice. At five, I'm going to shout out someone we already talked about, uh, Geraldine Viswanathan playing Kayla in Blockers. She's John Cena's daughter. I think all the girls are pretty good. Part of the reason I find that role so winning is that she is um, legibly the child of that character. And you see her sort of like overperform in moments where it's just like, yeah, guys, you may have a good, you have a good reason to hook up with your boyfriend. I'm just going to do it to do it. And then at the end of the day, she kind of reins it back in where she's like, actually, you know, I don't need to perform that much. I don't need to be like that uh, macho of a young woman. And then they have that great moment on the sit down on the bed where she's just like, dad, you didn't have to come find me tonight because like, I am the person you raised me to be. I brought you into the room by being here myself. I think it's a really good performance and probably the best written character in a movie that can be a little sketchy with the characters. All right, fuck it. I'm in. What? I'm in. I'm having sex tonight, too. Uh, just like that? Yeah, I mean, why not? Because it's your first time, and your first time should be special and perfect. Yours can be special and perfect. Mine is going to be tonight and with that dude. Number four for me is 
no surprise here, Aquafina from Crazy Rich Asians. I think she does a really masterful job in keeping like the Ken Jong ness of this movie in check where she's like funny, but also tethered to the real world. Mm -hmm. So when this movie threatens to let the spectacle, like just totally like take the movie off course and like, we're not even going to get to the wedding because what are we doing over here? Kind of thing. Jimmy O. Yang has a rocket launcher. Right. Then she's just like, don't worry script. Like I have a dress in the back of my car. So I'm going to attend this party now and set up everything for the ending. They came to Singapore when there was nothing but jungle and pig farmers. It was a snake here eating an apple. You know what I mean? And they built all of this. Now, they're the landlords of the most expensive city in the world. Here you go. These people are so posh and snobby. They're snotty. Ew. Yeah, but Nick's not like that. Even if he isn't, I guarantee you the family is. Which is why tonight, you need to not look like Sebastian of the Little Mermaid. My number four would be Army Hammer playing the worry-free CEO Steve Lift in Sorry to Bother You. Um, if you have ever wanted to see Army Hammer play a uh, coked-up, tunic-wearing Jeff Bezos, uh, this is the movie for you. Have you seen Sorry to Bother You? I haven't yet. I should. Oh, you gotta see it. I love it so much. Um, but he's just, he's out of control and yet, like, performs like whiteness in a way that is like very knowing um, in like making the like Keith Stanfield character rap um, and being into like certain things he raps and certain things he doesn't, but also just like is a very interesting in the cold capitalist sense. Like I'm this like crazy mad scientist, but don't you see this exaggerated version of the thing I just did is like what capitalism is all about. He's a very great part of that satire. Highly recommend Free CEO Steve Lift was interviewed on Oprah today. No, conclusively no. Our workers do not sign contracts under threats of physical violence. So therefore, the comparison to slavery is just ludicrous and offensive. We're transforming life itself. We're saving the economy. I mean, we're saving lives. It's all highlighted in my book. I lay out the whole thing. Number three for me is John Corbett uh, as the dad from... Uh, to all the boys I've loved before. I just thought he went after it. And I praised him at the time we talked about it. And I haven't forgotten his performance. So as the dad who's just trying to relate and also he's a doctor and also his wife is dead. John yeah. Corbett. He's pretty good with the, uh, the gynecological humor without being creepy. It's quite a feat. Junior year. I can hardly believe it. Thanks, Dad. Well, we need to talk about your sexual health. No, no, please no. I want you to be safe. Dad, why are you giving me these? Don't forget to have fun. Yes, well, I have a lot of rubbers for that, specifically. For my number three, I would shout out uh, Rachel Weisz, um, who is in Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favorite. Uh, there have been, we've had 20 years of Rachel Weisz now. I think she's 48, even though she looks like she's 28 still. Um, and she's played a lot of uh, interestingly deep and mysterious characters but i don't think i've ever seen her play someone who is cutting in her wit and capable of both like a very pristine posture and lashing out there's this great scene where she throws books at emma stone in this movie which i think is wonderful by the way um yeah she's great and you've never seen her do it before i think a lot of mine are actually dramatic actors who are making comedic performances sing the queen is an extraordinary person they're all staring, won't they? I can tell even if I can't see. And I heard the word fat, fat, and ugly. 
No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. That's great, man. Uh, number two for me, I think a big breakout in a movie we'll probably talk about in a second. Also, Game Night yeah. was Rachel McAdams, who I felt like was sort of floundering, maybe in that supporting drama kind of character work. Well, she and was I making think, movies about time travelers in love. But anyway, I think she's like funnier than people give her credit for. And totally. she's a really good like straight person to Jason Bateman's like fast talking, like, you know, guy who's got it figured out sort of, except for some fatal flaw. And yet the movie also gives her the room to do that Pulp Fiction diner revolver wave around riff, which is so fun. My number two, which is, oh man, if, if, if this number one didn't exist, I, I love this. So you know Jason Isaacs, right, Noah? I'm familiar with uh, the man who cut down Heath Ledger in his prime. <laughs> right. Um, and he would cut down in Harry Potter uh, if given if the opportunity. Could. Right. You've lost me my servant boy. Um, Isn't he also like one of the scientists in Armageddon? That's exactly right. He's a, a, <laughs> br- a British character actor who's definitely flirted with some blockbusters. In the Armando Iannucci movie Death of Stalin, he plays Field Marshal Zhukov. Basically, he's an army jock in a dystopia of bureaucrats with like Steve Buscemi and Jeffrey Tambor and all these people who are running around trying to figure out how to get the... Uh, get the Kremlin within their bureaucratic fingers. And he just shows up with like these medals rippling from his, from his army coat. And he's like, Oh, you motherfuckers. He's very British and like clapping people on the back. He's unbelievable in that movie. I really need your help. I'm going to have to report this conversation. Threatening to do harm or obstruct any member of the Presidium in the process of looking at your fucking face. <laughs> I took Germany. I think I can take a flesh lump in a waistcoat. And number one, I think we can unanimously say, also from Game Night, one Jesse Plemons as the cop who's recently divorced and living next door to their little townhouse. That's right. Easily the funniest thing I've seen in a movie this year. Certainly. It was so good. His just total deadpan. And he ultimately, like, is the deus ex machina too that's right that's right also like in several ways because like every time the movie's like not sure what to do it brings back jesse plemons and i think that is a wonderful net in which to fall (laughs) and his all of his dialogue is symptomatic of what makes the movie so good we've already talked about how like it's such a um a written movie with so many layers to the premise um, and it wouldn't work if they weren't thinking about like individual lines, scenes, tip-offs to the game at hand. And the Plemons character's whole thing is like his precision of language, which is so creepy as he's trying to endear himself to the people is what makes him hysterical. He's introduced. Gary walks out of the house um, to try and like get into their game night 
by checking the mail. Good evening, hey, Max. Gary. Annie. Hello there. Hi, Gary. Just checking the mail. Oh, yeah? Some people check it earlier in the day, but there's always a risk that the mail carrier hasn't come yet. This spares me the chance of a futile trip to the mailbox. Well, the interesting thing about him is like wondering like what his normal is and like wondering how far his like boundary is because like you get to know him and he's like this weird creepy guy but then you find out like his wife has left him and like things are like like he's obsessed with he's like a he's like a psychopath but also he's like a cop so he's it's it's unclear like he's 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 a real like wild card but he he that he knows that he has that like card to play. Yeah. Plemons is always like the most sure of himself in the room. What well, I love the end of the movie too. Cause it's not like, it's not like they don't want to hang out with him just cause he's a monster. It's also cause he's bad at game <laughs> night. They're doing the Pictionary thing. And it's like the, the stick figure of somebody crying. Um, and people are like, is it the crying game? They know it's a movie. It's like, this is green mile. Did you not weep when you went to the regal cinema to see green mile? <laughs> He's like a shitty, he's just a shitty game night participant. Right. He's not only a psychopath, he's bad at board games. <laughs> yes. Um, and thus it was written, 2018 And that was comedy. the year in comedic cinema. <laughs> Ne'er have two more qualified people spoken on a year in cinema than Noah and myself. Um, so yeah, not an unfunny year, not a bad year, just a year in which like popular comedy kept it strange um and you kind of had to go looking to find to find cool stuff and sometimes it was there for you from the studios like game night or mostly like blockers sometimes you take refuge in netflix sometimes you look for the indies but uh yeah i just feel like tully can't be any good (laughs) yeah let uh let that jason reitman dish diss be the last thing you hear on the show chance my friends Tell the people where they can find our podcast and tell them about our new website. My God. Sure. Yeah. So we would love you to find the podcast on the playlist.net and via the playlist podcast network with a bunch of other terrific shows like adjust your tracking over under movie podcast and indie beat Uh, subscriptions and ratings mean a lot to us and to the good people at the playlist pushing our show out. If you're looking for anything in the archives though, and by the way, we have done like 110 shows, the wonderful, lifelong friend michael todd has just finished our new website at berealpodcast.com where you can find old episodes it is gorgeous i dare say it is navigable uh and could be a good thing to check out yeah it's terrific thanks michael todd yeah man um and thank you buddy i'll talk to you soon gucci